0: This is a crowd podcast. Truman, Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Joe DiMaggio, Joe McCarthy, Richard
1: Nixon, Studebaker, Studebaker! How did that get in
0: there? Oh! Hello and welcome to episode 10 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that explores post-war history and the reasons why the world's like it is today. All done through the lyrics of a number one smash hit from the legend... That is Billy Joel. I'm Katie Puckrick and this is Tom Fordyce. Tom, are we ready for the next stage of this magical mystery tour?
1: I've come to love Billy. He just takes us to the strangest places. Like you think you know where you're going and then suddenly there's a jump cut and you're going somewhere completely different.
0: I don't even know if if I love him. I think that's uh, that's a bridge too far for me because I don't trust him. No. I don't trust Billy. Because, you know, one minute it's dark and then the next minute it's light and I'm not prepared for the future. I'm not even prepared for today. What is today?
1: Today, I think, is going to be the weirdest one for you and me. So this is when Billy talks about Studebaker cars. And I don't know about you, I know a little bit about cars. I know how to drive a car to a moderate extent. But I don't really know what a Studebaker car is. How about you?
0: Uh, I spent... Some years, as a child, in South Bend, Indiana, which was the location of the Studebaker factory.
1: Whoa, okay.
0: Yes. So um, I don't know that as a child I was aware of that. I I was aware of uh, acres and acres and acres of cornfields and lots of Native American arrowheads that I would dig up from the cornfields. But unbeknownst to me, it was a proving ground for uh, the early American automotive industry. So we're going to find out more about that today. OK.
1: Well, as always on this show, we have someone to hold our hand, Katie, to tell us all the stuff that we don't know about this particular subject. And this week, it's Greg Diffin. Greg, welcome. You are a Studebaker Uber fan, and you're the editor of the Studebaker Owners Club UK, welcome to We Didn't Start the Fire. Thank you.
0: Wow, there's such a thing as a Studebaker, there's like a blog, magazine, cult?
2: Yeah, there is. There's uh, 50 to 60 members here in the UK, but there's a lot more cars here for members, at least anyway. So, uh... Most Judy Baker people own more than one car.
0: Oh, so are you one of these guys that has the trashy front yard with all the the rusting, rotting cars? (laughs) No. Uh, That's not you. Pristine cars. Pristine, sorry. No, I have some
1: some shockers as well as some good ones. Because the thing is with this show, Greg, we always have to figure out why Billy Joel has chosen the references he has. And sometimes there's a suspicion it just rhymes. And sometimes there's a suspicion it's about the cadence. But I think with Studebaker, something has happened to Billy Joel that's lodged Studebaker in his head. And we're trying to work out what it is.
0: Yeah, what's his connection? I mean, I'm wondering whether, um, like, what's Studebaker's place... In the history of automobiles, because, uh, you know, I grew up knowing about Fords, you know, you always hear about the Model T, but it turns out that Studebaker was in there really early as well. Can you talk us through a little bit of the history of the company?
2: Studebaker has a really rich and colourful history, and it starts way before automobiles were ever thought about, because in 1852, Studebaker started building wagons. And by the turn of the century in 1900, they were the largest wagon-making company in the world. Literally a, a horse-drawn wagon wagon. Correct. So they made Conestoga wagons, farm wagons. They made Surrey's and Jigs and wagons to take presidents around. Oh, they... uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, uh, was in a, a Studebaker wagon.
0: No kidding. Mm-hmm. So they were the the first and final word in fine travel. And then also it sounds like in terms of like uh, agricultural haulage. They were sort of covering all the bases.
2: Absolutely. They do say that the American Civil War was won on the back of a Studebaker wagon.
1: Wow. So there's going to be a point then, Katie, where like we always think about technologies taking over certain industries and people are left behind, aren't they? You're doing one thing and then the world changes and, and you can't keep up. Yeah. Studebaker are clearly pretty quick movers if they're making wagons and then they see the automobile coming along. And rather than panic, and put their heads in the sand and go, no, no, wagons is what we do. They've actually gone, hang on a second, if we make wagons, we could make automobiles too.
0: Yeah, we can upgrade. What, yeah, that's a good point. What was the transition?
2: Well, the transition was a little bit difficult for Studio because they didn't bury their head in the sand, but they were slow on the uptake with these new jalopies and bone-shaking rides that were coming along. The two surviving brothers had the idea that they wanted to go with electric vehicles. So they built those till about 1910. And they weren't very big sellers because they couldn't go very far. But if you lived in town in New York City, what a great little machine to run around in. Smooth, I had no idea there were electric cars 110 years ago. Yeah, there were. Oh. It wasn't just Studebaker doing it. There was quite a few manufacturers doing electric cars. But you've got to remember in those days, nobody thought that even a gasoline-powered car would even happen. There was so much design happening back then. Cars were just in their infancy. They didn't know if it was going to be steam, electric, gasoline.
0: Or maybe just a hole cut in the bottom of the chassis and feet on the ground. (laughs)
1: Flintstone style. Flintstone
0: style. (laughs) I'm wondering, uh, at the beginning of the automotive industry, who was driving cars? Was it men mostly? Well, I would have thought it was
2: actually. I mean... I think girls would have been driving horse and carts a lot because they knew how to handle a horse. But when it came to cars in those early days, they really didn't get uh, electric starts till probably 1914 on a car. So you really had to hand crank it and you needed to-
0: Oh, and also there's probably no power steering, right? Yeah, so Armstrong
2: you have to... power steering in those days. Yeah. <laughs> Getting back to your original point there, I would have thought perhaps early to mid fifties, I think that's when uh, women came into driving a lot more cars, had electric, um, they had power steering then. Mm. And they became a lot nicer to drive. And then there was a bit more money in the world after World War II.
0: I'm curious about Studebaker fans such as yourself. What is it about Studebakers particularly that, that draws you to them?
2: For me, it goes back to my childhood when my dad had one. When I was a kid, he had a Long Hawk, which is a derivation of that 53 Lowy Coupe. Growing up in Melbourne, which was the back end of the world in the early 60s and the late 60s, that was a very unusual car on the road and they built them in australia and compared to the fords and holdens it looked really fantastic and even for a four or five year old like i was i just thought that was really quite an amazing car
1: so there's there's one particular studebaker i'm interested in the avanti so the avanti sounds like it was a racy number the avanti is not the economical family end of the studebaker range this is the glamour end oh absolutely
2: I don't like them as much as I used to when I was a kid because they were really flashy. It's like driving a Porsche when you're in your early 20s. Uh, an Avanti is a really wonderful car. It's It handles well. Uh, it's got disc brakes on it. They had a lot of firsts in Avantis.
0: I'm looking at a picture of them now, and uh, they have this really long uh, hood in the front, and they have like weird little... Uh, headlights that almost look like nerdy uh, mad scientist glasses. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's they look almost a little European somehow. There's a little continental flair.
2: Well, they were designed by Raymond Lowy, who was a Frenchman. He's credited with the guy who invented industrial design and smoothing things out and making complicated designs simple. And he'd been thinking of that design for quite a while. He tried it a bit with Jaguar. They didn't run with it. And then in the end, Studio Baker gave him that blank canvas on the back of a uh, napkin with a few op- uh, things that they wanted to be, like on the Studio Studebaker chassis, use a Studio Baker motor, do anything you want
1: after that. The designer's dream. That's yeah. so
0: great. So basically, it was created over a business lunch, it sounds like. Yes. And what what's Studebaker's place in pop culture? Because I'm always aware of, like, you think about Prince singing about Little Red Corvette, mm. or you think about... Um, uh, the Beach Boys singing, you know, we'll have fun, fun, fun till Daddy takes her T-bird away. Um, where does Studebaker crop up? Do you, do we see it in uh, in films, or you know, where have you experienced it across pop culture? Not very often. Oh, it's a connoisseur's car. It's like a kind of an underdog. It is the underdog. Studebaker was
2: always the underdog. Ford and Chevrolet were well, they were making one and a half to two million cars each, and Studebaker was making a hundred thousand, hundred and twenty thousand. So it was always the left-field car. Al Jolson had a studio bugger. Judy Garland had one. Did she? A little champion, yep. John
1: Wayne, Groucho Marx. Wow.
0: So it was a, a car that was known amongst the, uh, the smart set in Hollywood, for sure. The connoisseur's car. Well, I, also a car where you're, it's not basic, is it? You know, you're not just the ordinary Joe. You're not getting the, the standard thing. You're not stooping to conquer.
1: And if Katie, or, Katie and I were to go out for a spin in an Avanti... Have you got at the moment?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so let's say um, at the end of this podcast that you trust us sufficiently to give us the keys to your pride and joy, and Katie and I settle in in the driver's seat and the passenger seat, and we turn the key. What sound? Is there a distinctive sound for an Avanti? A oh, very deep throat rumble. Really. And you love it because it's factory supercharged. Mm. And boy, does it go when you put that right foot down on the f- oh, on the on the floor. It takes off. So me and Katie are zooming around the countryside.
0: Yeah, whiplash. <laughs> yeah, whiplash. <laughs> Every time we take off from, from a stop sign. Oh, he, you're showing us some of your cars. Is this your car, this purple thing?
2: My lilac car. Yes, it's a 1958 Packard hardtop.
0: It is so beautiful. So what I'm looking at is a really long, low bonnet. Um, it almost has a face on it with, the, with teeth. It does, there's, doesn't it? The headlights
1: definitely look like eyes.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's like catfish grill with these like teeth coming up. And then um, it's got fins on the back. So it's kind of, it's got it all going on. It's got a lot of personality, this car.
2: It has. Well, although that's a Packard, Studebaker Baker built Packards at the end. And that's the last year you could buy a Packard. But it was paled by Baker, and all the components on it are Baker. The Packard is really a Studebaker in drag at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah, <laughs>
0: well put. Let's look at some more. Show us, show us what you got. This
2: is an iconic one that I have.
0: Now, what is this that we're looking at? That's
2: a 1950s Baker Commander, the big one that they did. And it's a starlight coupe. And if you flick back one photograph, you'll see why they have the uh, reputation of which way is it going.
0: Uh, so, I'm looking at this, uh, it's, it's like a push-me-pull-you car, because you can't <laughs> tell which is the front or the back, or maybe it's one of those uh, hairy dogs that uh, walk down the street and you can't see which <laughs> is the head and which is the tail.
2: Oh no, that, the front of that is, uh, is quite iconic.
0: Yeah, it's very, it's long and low, it's another pale green, kind of almost like a pale olive green colour, and you have that delicious chrome on the front that looks a little space-age.
1: And the white wall tires as well. It's just so reminiscent of a particular era of American cars, isn't it?
0: There's something. It just really quietly purrs luxury to me. That car.
1: Something about the stylings as well, because it feels. I'm guessing these are all designed by hand. They're not designed by a computer, and you can see.
0: There's no computers back then in the olden days, Tom. What are you thinking about?
1: You can almost see like the artist's hand. I think in the in the sweep of the curves sometimes. There's something about it that just you couldn't do that on a computer.
0: Well, there's another point as well. When you talk about space age, it's it's that kind of um nostalgic, you know, when they had that olden days uh, idea of what the future was going to be like. And of course, disappointingly, the future is like <laughs> much more boxy and Where
1: are those jetpacks? Yeah,
0: pointy then. And but back then it was very glamorous and gentle and curved and Uh, very voluptuous.
2: And this is my 1937 Studio Bagger, which is my favourite car of all. And that was
1: my wedding car back in Australia. Look at this beauty.
0: It's so, like, big and heavy. It's almost like a tank.
1: If you were to blindfold me and ask me to describe a 1930s car... Yeah. I'm pretty much coming up with that.
0: You know, in my head, I went to you being blindfolded, just sensuously rubbing your hands all over the car <laughs> yeah. and being asked to to, to to describe what you're feeling. So, um, But, yeah, I went to a full, like, immersive experience with you. Um, with my blindfold. And rubbing your hands all over <laughs> an object. I don't, I don't know what that says about me.
2: Well, you'll have to come up and rub your hands over the avadi. I'd like That's to. That's got a lot of curves. Like There's not, not one straight line on that car.
0: Okay, we're going to hop off for a quick ad break, but we'll be right back.
1: Well, it's a quiz. But this time, it's a podcast. Yes! Wow. With me, Makita Oliver. I was going to go with that at first, you know, I really was. I love a quiz. I'm nervous.
2: Oh How many edges does a 20p have? Uh Oh, my gosh. Oh, my
1: God, I'm doing so badly.
2: We will quiz, we will chat, and then we will repeat. Forever. Just
0: search Quiz Chat Repeat in your podcast app. So let's talk about what happened to Studebaker. Why is it a collectible now? Because it uh, ended its reign in the 60s, I believe. What happened to Studebaker?
2: Well, Studebaker made a couple of fundamental errors. I think the first one they probably did was in the late 20s, I think they got a little complacent. Um, StudioBaker was the only American company out of 5,000 or so that made the transition successfully between building wagons to building cars. And in the late 20s, anybody could sell a cart that was making cars, and they were making money hand over fist. So instead of updating the factories and shifting it and making it much more modern, they gave most of their money back to their shareholders. So by the time the Depression hit they were in trouble and out of cash. And they did go into receivership briefly there, and then ca- they came back in 1934. And this is, I think Studebaker should have gone out of business in 53 on 54, but they just managed to scrape through for that extra 10 years. And when they came out with that 53 Coupe, they couldn't produce it fast enough for the orders. And then they made a fundamental error in trying to take the Coupe looks and put it onto a four-door sedan, which didn't really work very well, and it wasn't a good seller for them. So they started to lose a lot of money. In 53, there's another shift that happens in the automotive industry at that time. Ford decides they want to sell as many cars as possible and enter into a price war. So if you weren't part of the big three...
0: And who were the big three?
2: General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler. So all the independents then, Willys, Hudson, Studebaker, Packard, Nash, they were in strife. Edsel. It's Well, no, he's a Ford.
0: Oh, OK. It was just a bit of a... Oh, yeah, yeah. That all didn't
2: right. go very well for Ford. No, it didn't. <laughs> they had their problems too. But none of the independents made any money in 53 or 54. They were all losing money, and they just looked to each other to merge, because they had to, to survive. And Studebaker ended up merging with Packard, who was also making a big loss, but I think they were forced into it at the end with a shotgun marriage. But they sort of managed to pull things together somehow and keep going with their cars and trying to get the two factories together, but it didn't really work very well for Packard. They did have a redesign in 58 to make a little lark in 59. And it was this, almost the first of the compacts. And it just hit the mark for that year. And it beat the big three to that punch, who then started to make compacts in 61. So they made good money in 59 for a change. It was probably the last year that Studio Baker ever made money.
0: What I'm hearing from what you're saying is that Studebaker, time and time again, are innovating. They're coming up with designs that people actually want. And then there's always, they always fall at the last hurdle. Like they can't produce enough, or, you know, they, they sort of miss the mark, or they, they're not able to surf the wave of interest that, that they've incited. It's almost like they failed despite themselves. Like they, they could have actually been a success story.
2: They could have been, but like anything, management gets complacent when you're making money because they think this will go on forever. They don't quite see what happens when the market shifts or if you design a car and the public doesn't quite like that design. In 54 and 55, when their car, their sedan range really wasn't selling well, they should have spent the money then to redesign, but they were in that catch-22 situation that because they were losing money, the banks didn't want to give them too much money to new tool and they were in trouble again.
1: There's almost a poetry, Katie, isn't there, about those old independent car manufacturers. Greg, just run through that list again that you gave us of the of the independents outside the big three.
2: There's Nash, Willys, Rambler, Packard. I'm sure there's another one in Hudson, there. Hudson, did you mention? In Hudson,
1: yes. And there's, for me, because they are all quite redolent of a particular era in America. And there's something quite melancholic, isn't there, about all these old companies that were set up, probably by family members, by brothers in the case of Studebaker and you know, innovators and they have their period and then they just, something changes in the wider world and they just fade away.
0: Well, it's a more romantic version of, uh, you know, beta versus VHS. <laughs> Video 2000, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. It's just what everyone comes out of the starting gate with the same, the same chances and then they fall away as the century progresses and not even for good reasons or bad reasons. It could just be happenstance as well. So we're in the early 60s and Studebaker had this one good car that kind of was uh, revived their fortunes. And then what happened?
2: They kept losing money, Mm. no matter what they did. Even with the high performance cars that they had with the Avanti, they just couldn't make money. And they were building so few cars compared to the big three Mm. at the time, and I think also, getting back to a lot of questions with business, you need a little bit of luck or, and a little bit of foresight with it as well to sort of work out where you want to go. The big three just got bigger, but Studebaker was too small to compete on any realistic scale with them.
1: Would there have been a sadness when Studebaker finally goes under in the early 60s? Would there have been like a sadness across America? Was there a sense that America was losing this part of its heritage? I think there probably was. Studio Baker had been there for 114
2: years by the time they went out of business. Ford's only gone over the 114 years, probably in about 2015. And at the end, I think they went out with a bang with the Avanti. And Avanti was quite interesting, actually, because after Studio Baker closed, uh, one of their biggest dealers in South Bend bought the rights to Avanti and he kept building it. And people who had Avanti's, because it was the last Studio Baker you could buy that was independently designed kept buying new ones off nane altman with a chev motor and plush carpets in them <laughs> they were quite
1: outrageous and what would have happened in south bend because you with the big three that you talk about we're used to the idea of what happens to big american cities when the car manufacturers go and you get the rust belt and what happens to De- detroit and places like that so when south bend loses stew is that the end for south bend it was viewed like that for a little
2: while but there was a time contractor that was in one of the old Studio Baker buildings where they built their World War II bomber motors and trucks. So a lot of the Studio Baker people would have gone to work in that automotive industry.
0: When I lived in South Bend, I was a child. And my dad actually taught at Notre Dame University, uh, which I'm aware every time I say Notre Dame, British people snort <laughs> and sneer at me because I'm supposed to say it in French style, Notre Dame. Uh, We say Notre Dame. Uh, So I just associate it with um, a lot of Catholics running around. So I have no great insights. And this, talking to Greg today, um, I now learn that there's this whole other seam of 20th century pop culture that was generated by this unassuming Midwestern city. Wow. Greg, I've heard about something called the Studebaker Graveyard. What is that?
2: The Studi Baker Graveyard is on the old proving grounds that Studi Baker created in the mid-20s to test their cars. And what's interesting about the Studi Baker uh, proving grounds is in the late 30s, they planted the word Studi Baker in pine trees. And it's the largest living sign still in existence in the world. Ah. And the Studi Baker Graveyard is in the middle of a three-mile test track there where... They probably destroyed a lot of their cars doing doing all their tests. to uh, auto manufacturers do. I think there was forty five cars in there from nineteen thirty nine as the earliest to nineteen fifty five. They're still there, but everything in there is overgrown and just. It was their junk spot where to put cars because they didn't want to toast, tow them away. But maybe scrap metal wasn't worth that much in those days.
1: Sounds really evocative, Casey, doesn't it? This graveyard of these old cars, mm. rusting and being overgrown by. By weeds and trees and roots.
0: And also, I love the idea of the largest living sign in the world. And you think about uh, space aliens coming in and they see, <laughs> very, yeah, the yeah. Stu- they see Studebaker and then they see the big naked man with the schlong. Where Massive is that? penis. Yeah, at, where at, is uh, the-
1: it? Uh, is it?
0: Somewhere in Britain, yes, of course. And um, so, yeah, they're like, hmm, what's important here for Earthlings? And <laughs> and that's what they come away with, schlongs and Studebakers. Bakers. <laughs>
1: So, Greg, I think there's going to be people listening to this who have had their appetites wetted, who quite fancy owning a Studebaker. Are they really hard to get hold of? No, there's plenty of Studebakers around. You
2: just have to pick the model you want from 1852 to 1966.
0: And you, Greg, you have, what, 15? So... You might be a source. You might be a resource for these.
2: Probably. I've been saying I need to get down to 10 cars for years.
0: (laughs) Well, there you go. Greg has five. (laughs) Price to move. (laughs) The trouble is,
2: getting below 13, anything below that's really hard for me. I've got to make some serious decisions, and I don't think I'm prepared to do it.
1: (laughs) How much, let's say Katie and I decide we'd like to invest in an Avanti. We want to get ourselves a decent one that's not going to break down this. How much are we looking at?
2: Well, there's an old adage from a guy called John Poulos in America that says, there's nothing more expensive than a cheap Avanti. okay. So all I can say (laughs) is spend as much as you possibly can. So I would think at $30,000 US, you'll
1: pick up something that's pretty reasonable. Can Katie and I pop up to Warwick one day and possibly borrow the keys for the Avanti? Absolutely. I'd be happy to give them to you. Fantastic. And I mean that genuinely.
0: He's so trusting. You are so trusting.
2: A lot of people have driven my cars.
0: The hobby is
2: A chance for people to feel things that they've never felt before. And I also believe that my cars are prepared well enough that I could hand you the keys and say, take that for a spin and tell me what you
1: think. That is our first We Didn't Start the Fire actual physical adventure, isn't it?
0: Yes. I think we we booked that in for the TV (laughs) version.
1: (laughs) And would you, when Billy releases his song in 1989, I'm guessing you're driving your Studebaker then. Are you the happiest man in the whole of Australia? When Billy Joel's, we didn't start the fuck. He's mentioned Studebaker's.
2: Yeah. I, I couldn't believe it when I heard it on the radio. I was driving my 63 Avati at the time and I thought, he, I'm sure he said Studebaker there. <laughs> Studebaker he would have said, but I don't, I call it Studebaker. It came on again a few days later and I thought, yes, he did say Studebaker, <laughs> Baker." you little ripper. <laughs>
0: and, and was it a sense of validation? You're like, Yes.
2: Yes, because Studio Pagan never hits the news very often in anything mainstream.
1: Oh, bless Billy then, you see. That's why he's done it, Katie.
0: That's why he's done it. He did it for Greg. He did it for Greg and all of those who share that enthusiasm.
1: Greg, that's been fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. It's been great being here. It's been brilliant. I do really want to drive one now.
0: Yeah, I do. Do -do 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 So it's the time of the show to assess the prominence of Studebaker in these lyrics. Uh, Is Billy just working on his cadence needs (laughs) here or is he paying homage to something that uh, was personally very important to him? What do you think about this, Tom?
1: I have been charmed by the tales of Studebakers that we've heard, Katie, but I do wonder if the fact, because Billy sings this song in a very staccato way, doesn't he?
0: Yeah, very percussive. He kind of spits out lyrics.
1: Exactly. So I think Studebaker is definitely working for him in that regard in a way that, say, Ford, as a single-syllable word, might not.
0: Yeah. Or Chrysler. That's too soft.
1: Packard is a bit...
0: um, Studebaker! 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 Yeah, I think Studebaker really uh, sells it. Just sells itself. Although, I'm wondering, and we can find this out once we track down billy joel and we
1: will track down billy joel
0: oh i like how confident you are about that
1: i think billy might track us down
0: oh there you go the mountain comes to muhammad (laughs) in this case mr and mrs muhammad So, yeah, so I think uh, when we corner Billy in a stalkerish fashion uh, at a time of our choosing and not his, which will make him feel a little bit uncomfortable, (laughs) we will determine at that stage whether Studebaker has uh, some sort of intimate connection to his life, because it might mean something to him. It might be a car that he grew up with. The the Joel
1: family may have had a Studebaker.
0: The Joel family may well have had a flatbed truck Studebaker in the middle of New York now, I don't think
1: so. I can't see the uh, the Avanti. I can't see an Avanti in, in the Bronx. Can you?
0: I can't see an Avanti in the Bronx, no. And also, uh, maybe more a flatbed truck that he could fit a small piano into the back. Exactly. He, to, for as gigs. a piano man. As a piano man. He'd need to like ship his upright to, to the bars. Yeah. Maybe that doesn't work. Maybe I, I don't have the right idea of uh, actually how he, <laughs> how he conducted his career as a young, struggling musician. Perhaps you don't, need to show up with your own piano the
1: bars just have a piano
0: they do have a piano so he doesn't need that flatbed truck but i wasn't really sure of the prominence personally of the studebaker and its position but i think just through its syllabic force studebaker uh, (laughs) it definitely does hold its own in the context of we didn't start the fire so
1: Billy's told us we didn't start the fire, but who did spread the fire? Well, hopefully you are going to do that on behalf of me and Katie. Tell your friends, leave us a review on your podcast app, and maybe you want to share your own experiences, your own thoughts about Billy's lyrics, about the things he talks about. Send us a message at fire at Crowd Network, a place where you belong.
2: I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor, a Civil War Army doctor, and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The SIECLA, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War One. The SIECLE, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.
0: A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction?